Well, before we come to God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us. We come with thanks, Lord, that your word is a living word. It strikes to the joint of the joining place between bone and marrow, spirit and soul. It speaks to hearts that are open and laid bare before it. We cannot hide from it. Please help us today as we think about it some more. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we come back this morning to this theme we began at the start of the month, this idea that there are tensions in the Christian life, truths that seem to be opposed to each other and so seem to be opposites, but in fact are representative of a bigger truth at two extremes. In this series so far, just to remind you, we've looked at the tension between freedom and submission, that between joy and sorrow, that between fear and love, and now we come to this one being in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. Now, you may have heard it said in life, according to their position, in government or any other public service or even in ministry, that some people must walk a fine line. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk a fine line, but it's not easy. Just try putting a piece of rope or string on the ground and try walking on it without falling to the left or to the right. On the ground, not above the ground. It's not easy. Just maintaining your balance. It's not always that easy. And if that's too easy, get some of the real stuff that tightrope walkers use and lift it off the ground six feet. Then try it and see how that goes. But don't do it without a safety net. Don't try this at home. The real thing isn't so easy. And as any tightrope walker or anyone who has ever tried it will testify, one small movement to the left or to the right could spell disaster very quickly. Well, there's a fine line in this morning's text as well. A line so fine it needs exploration because it's almost invisible. Being in the world but not of the world sounds almost simple, but in fact... In real life, it's much harder to define and much harder to do. Church history tells us that Christians throughout the ages have had various interpretation of what this idea calls for, with a wide variety of results. Long ago, some believers decided that being in the world and not of it, meant that you need to withdraw from the world entirely. And that's what many did. They withdrew. They went to go and live in caves. They lived on the top of poles. Would you believe that? Or in holy huddles, entirely retreating from the evil of the world by getting as far away as possible from it. It all sounded fine in retreating, but they weren't much of a blessing to anyone, were they? If you study church history, you'll come across a man. He's probably the man you go wow about. 
His name was Simon the Stylite or Simon Stylites who lived on a platform on top of a 60-foot pole in Syria for 36 years. Can you imagine that? Living on a platform on top of a pole? Thousands of people came to hear him preach and the fact that he preached is great but I have all kinds of questions as no doubt you do too when you think of him sitting up there for so long. Then in more recent times there's been a push to get the church back into the world. Not out of the world but into the world. And with that, churches that meet where the world meets. I'm not having a go at this, but stating a fact. Drive-in churches or churches in pubs and bars as the pendulum swings the other way. But sometimes it can swing so far the other way that it's meant that the church really has become in the world and also of the world which again falls short of what we're called to be, that fine line, maintaining that witness to the world but not being like the world. And that's always proved the hardest thing to balance. So this is the tension. Jesus tells us of this tension in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world, he says to his disciples. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now I don't know all the answers to this but I do know that as this century is marked by the idolisation of power, of wealth, of sensuality, of artistic freedom, of rising secularism and an abandoning of basic Christian truths that we are left in the situation where this fine line seems to be getting wider and wider, the gap between the church and the world. Part of the problem for us is the obvious aspect of this tension. We live in the world. It's all around us both the created world of nature and the world system itself. We can't help be in the world. Otherwise, we would would leave it all together. But we can help being of the world or being like the world. And that's where things get dicey and hard. In the olden days, it was obvious. Christians didn't drink. They didn't play cards, they didn't go to the movies. That's what Christians didn't do. But these days, so much areas of grey have come. So what's changed? Have we changed or has the world changed? Or have God's standards changed, causing us to change our own position? To get to the bottom of the issue, I want us to look at John, 1 John, Chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, where John states the matter in this way, do not love the world, nor anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
These are searching words, aren't they? They're very clear. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now let's think briefly about John's letter before anything else. Uh, John is writing his letter to a group of churches. He's an older man. He's writing to his spiritual children whom he calls his little children. He wants to make their joy complete. He wants to build them up in the faith. He wants to warn them against antichrists and false teaching. He cares deeply about them. And there are two fundamental problems behind his letter that he's addressing. One is theological, one is ethical. There's a group of false teachers who are teaching that matter, things we touch, are inherently evil. And they're denying the incarnation. See, Jesus simply appeared to be a man because he couldn't have become matter because matter is evil. If matter is evil, what does that lead to? It leads to an ethical problem. It doesn't matter how we live if the goal of our life is to escape the material world. We're looking for no new heaven and no new earth and no resurrected body. We're looking to escape the world. It doesn't matter how you live, therefore, in the here and now. Now this is where John sets out to bring balance and set out clearly what our attitude ought to be to the world, putting it quite brutally that we are not to love the world, meaning that we not, must not just be neutral to the world, but that we must hate the world. Now why would John tell us to do that? After all, isn't the world the very object of God's love? According to the most well-known verse that John himself wrote, for God so loved the world that he gave... Well, there are three reasons that are outlined in these verses, although there are maybe many more in the rest of the scriptures that the Bible would add, the Bible writers would add, and then we'll explore in the application just the heart of the issue. Well, the first of John's reasons we need to think on is carefully this, simply because of what the world is. What we mean by the term the world is so important. We use the term world to refer to a lot of things. We talk about the world of sport. We talk about the world of politics. When someone goes off the beam a little, we say they're out of this world, not meaning to say they've left the planet and gone to live on Mars. So too, John could not have in mind the world of humanity because that would go against John 3.16 and what he says in his Gospel. He's not talking about people. Nor did he have in mind the physical world. He's not talking about plants and animals and trees, insects and birds and ground and fish. He's not talking about that. Because these are all God's creation and God said they're all very good. It's important to grasp then what world John has in mind. For if we don't know, we can't do what he says. The answer is as follows. John is writing about the system of human thought, the system of logic, the system of philosophy and entertainment and amusement in which God plays no part and which is actually opposed to him and his word. 
The Bible uses the term the world in this sense to describe everything that seeks to exalt itself over God or that seeks to distort, misrepresent or discredit God or his word or his rule. It's this world that we're not to be part of. We're commanded not to be a part of. The world that lives, exists and functions and continues on in which God plays no part. A world that has a ruler who calls himself the prince of this world, Satan. We are not to be of the world because the world expresses thoughts and ideas which come from the prince of this world. Like these, you can live without God. You'll be okay. After all, if God ever was, he's now dead. In fact, if you're going to have God, you're God. You are your own God. There is no truth. You are the master of your own destiny. Now I'd be surprised if you've never heard anything like that come from the world, whether on the TV or the radio or advertisements or movies or anything. It's either would mean your TV is broken or you don't have one. This system of thought is all around us. We live in this age where it's peddled. It's not only just all around us, it's seeking to draw us away from the narrow path of God's word and entice us to join a wider, broader, less wearying path with the majority of people in the direction they're heading to a destination they don't really think exists. It's for this reason, the fact that this world belongs, the system of the world belongs to the devil and is opposed to God, that the Bible calls us to be separate from the world, to be in it, of course, but not of it, and why John says here we are not to love it. How is that? It is that because you cannot be of the darkness and the light. You cannot be for God and against him. You cannot claim to love him and then love what he hates. You cannot be his while loving something that robs him of his glory. That's why we can't help be in the world but not to be of it. There's another reason here, the second reason why we should be in but not of the world is because of what the world does. The text continues in verse 16, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. See, the world is not neutral about God. Rather, it is opposed to him and as an enemy, the world seeks to trap by deception those who may be unwary. There's nothing new here, is there? Looking at the picture on the screen, we'll remind you of the original deception in the Garden of Eden by the prince of this world himself. There, what happened? Eve saw the fruit that it was good for food. Doesn't have to be an apple. It was pleasant to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. And what does John speak of here? 
the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he is and does. It's not hard to see the devil's employing many other things other than the fruit of a tree to entice a modern generation away from the real issues at hand. What the world does is simply follow suit of what happened in the garden and takes God-given good desires within us for food, for drink, for physical intimacy and rest and turns them inside out and upside down and makes gods of them. Says, this is what you're made for. Then it bombards us with how we should drink this, eat that, go there, do this, look like this, exalting the goal of pleasure and self-will over everything else we were ever made for. This is how the world operates. It appeals to normal appetites and tempts us to satisfy them in ways that God says, no, that's not for you. Just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not for Adam and for Eve. And it does this by the process of deception, luring us away from the gold to the glitter, from rock-solid lasting truths to pleasures that can come and go like the wind. It's not hard to see why people of all ages why a man like Demas ended up having no room for God and become thoroughly infected by the world in every way. The promises, the glamour, the dazzling lights, the pull of the world around us and they trap and deliver and ultimately devour the unwary, promising so much but never ever providing deliverance from slavery to sin. So that reference of Paul to Demas is one of the saddest parts of the New Testament, don't you think? Paul writes about Demas. Instead of keeping his distance to the world and witnessing to it of the wonder of the gospel, Demas falls in love with the world and ends up forsaking both the gospel and Paul. The pool of the world, the magnet of the world, has a strong pull, that magnet drawing you towards whatever it is, pleasure or riches or fame or glory or power. It's not just Demas that has fallen for it. The third reason John tells us why we should be in but not of the world and not love the world is the reason where the world is heading Verse 17 says, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. He contrasts those two things. Many people, of course, have the attitude that the world is about the most permanent thing you could come across, except for those who would say the doomsday clock is now close to midnight. They think that though many things will fall, the world, as we've come to know it, will never ever fall. It will never go. But the only thing that really is sure about this world system is that it is unsure. It is uncertain. It will never last the distance. It will not endure forever. It's upon these lines that we're reminded that we're called as believers by some curious names. In one place we're called pilgrims. 
pilgrims because we're only passing through this world en route to our real home in heaven. In another place, we're called strangers. Strangers because we don't belong in the world that we live. Aliens in this place. This place is not home, however nice it may be. Now, if you'd been born last century, but knew by some freakish manner that the maiden voyage of the Titanic would end in disaster... Would you have bought a ticket? More than that, would you have put all your things on that ship knowing that all would be consigned for the rest of time to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean? I suspect I know already what your answers would be. Why get on a ship that was headed for disaster? Why indeed? But why do so many bank on and hope for a world, this world, lasting forever? that riches will go with you somehow into the afterlife, that this world will just go on and on and on and never end. It's probably the most common mistake people of our society make around us to think that life will just go on, that you can eat, drink and be merry and enjoy life all your days when life is really so fragile And when it ends without a moment's notice, people go, I didn't know. I didn't know that death was coming. I didn't know that that's the end of mankind. The world will pass away. But what? He who does the will of God will live forever, which creates this tension for us, living between the now and the then, between the here and the there, between time and eternity. Well, how to conclude this? Let's begin here. I freely admit to not knowing much about sailing. Put me in a sailboat and ask me to do whatever needs to be done and I'll be floundering. But I do know one basic rule about sailing that I think you also will know. And that one basic rule is this, that a boat is made for the water. To sail on, to float on or to cruise on top of the water. It's also well known that if the boat takes in water that it will not remain afloat much longer. The boat is meant for the water. The water is not meant for the boat. It's a good analogy to keep in mind because the water gets into the boat often by copying the world around us and the scriptures are full of warnings about what happens when that happens. Just think for a moment about the long, long history of the people of Israel and Judah who often fell for this trap, wanting what the other nations had, anything they saw that other nations had. They wanted a king like the other nations had. They wanted these things because they did not love the Lord their God. They didn't value what he had done for them. And that's the reason at the very heart of the warnings we have here. If we want something, it's often because we love something. And when we love something, it comes, as we know, from the heart. And God knows that if we love the world, and if the world gets into this place of great affection, hard 
how terribly hard it will be to uproot from our hearts the love of the world. Impossible. Now let's be clear here, there's another fine line to cross, this word love. It means a lot of things depending on the context it's used in and here the context is this. John is referring to a fondness and an affection for an object because of its value, because of, its, because of an appetite, because of a desire, something that I take pleasure in, something that I set my heart upon, something I get my comfort from, something I derive my hope from. Which leads me to ask, what drives the deepest part of your heart? What do you love? Those of you who know the Lord of the Rings, the books or the movies will be familiar that a golem ended up in possession of the ring that ended up taking possession of him. And you'll know too he called it what? My precious. My precious. What's your precious? What's your precious? What drives you in the direction of your precious? That's the question. What are your appetites? How are you directing them? Because it's often an inner appetite that betrays us. That's how sin works. James says in his letter, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's not the devil made you do it. It's your desire that he is striking the strings of, striking the strings of. It begins with desires. It begins with appetites. That's the entry point. That's where sin comes in and enslaves and snares. And the end result, if left unchecked, is that we join Demas in the ranks like him. See, never in a million years did Jesus expect his disciples to abandon the world for caves and mountains and monasteries and withdraw completely? If he did expect that, then why did he call us the salt of the earth? Why did he call us the light of the world? Now, we can't help be in the world, but we're in the world for a purpose, not to be of the world, but to be reflections of him who is the light of the world and who calls us to be same kind of lights, reflecting his brilliance and glory. It all begins in the heart, he says. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness, says Jesus. What your heart is focused on, that which you love, that will help you not to love the world but to be in it and not of it. Will you pray with me that we might find the balance? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are searching words from the Apostle John that call us to a certain kind of response not necessarily in following a list of do's and don'ts, 
but really seeking to expose our hearts to you. Because if the love of the world creeps into our hearts, then everything else falls like a castle, sandcastle. It all comes down to the heart. Do we love you with a heart that's full of gratitude, single-minded, focused on Christ and his glory? Or are we playing with that, perhaps straddling the fence, foot in both camps, wanting the best of what the world can offer, but letting go of what you have given us. We pray for the people in the world, like Demas, who fall in love with the world, not in any stage wanting to exalt ourselves over them because we suffer the same sin. Please read from our hearts the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of what we boast in and exalt in, remembering that we have nothing, everything we have is from you. We came into the world with nothing, we leave it with nothing and all is from you. So help us, we pray, with this difficult thing to love you with all our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We haven't heard this hymn for some time. I think what was appropriate, helpful. When we walk with the Lord, in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way.